More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. In today's episode, I'm talking to Anna about the challenges in her life, having a profoundly disabled child and the impact that has on her and her family, how being different in today's world is extremely challenging, the importance of friends and being real and human around them and why therapy is good. I really hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. So welcome. Thank you. What do you love about yourself? (laughs) Just start with a really easy question. Easy question. No. (laughs) Do you start every one with that? No. No. They're all different. Right. That's an emotional question. Well, I think that I, I don't know, I can, I keep going through tough times. You know, I can, like, respect, you know, I have, I have, you know, value that in myself. And so give me an example of something you've gone through which has been really tough. Well, I I think my life is tough. I have a severely disabled daughter. I'm single, like I'm self-employed, I do unusual challenging work, my, I'm away from my family. So, you know, like I've lived, I've taken risks and taken chances in life that have led me going out of like the family norm or just staying close to home and doing what's expected and changing careers and change, moving into state a couple of times and, you know, taking risks. And yeah, so it, it feels like part of that has been great, but part of that has led to having to do a lot on my own and why did you choose to because that's a, all those things you've just said each one in their own lots of people couldn't handle one of them you've done a number of them I mean mm. not some of them you haven't had a choice but yeah what in you makes you go okay I want to I this is something that I need to do and I keep pushing myself yeah and you don't go okay that's too much or that's enough what, where does that come from I don't know if that's like innately part of my nature or if it's a you know being working with people therapeutically you know it's 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 like looking for something that you don't have as in you know from trying to fix a problem or fill a hole or you know because what is what's here isn't okay I'm trying I'm a seeker you know so I'm looking for something to make me feel better or would I have always been that way like my father's an immigrant, so he took a big risk and left home and was set up his own business. And so I can see, in a way, that that that's and you know part of what I've been modelled. My mum was very conservative and good, and you know like a very classic woman of her time. So I can see that I've got an example of taking risks and going out into the big world and looking for a better life. But I also think that there's a, an inner dissatisfaction that's looking for something better as well, you know. And do you think that you're constantly searching for something, you're not sure you found what it is, or that's not why you 
keep doing different things that take you different places. You're just looking for the next challenge. Well, a lot of those felt like big, instinctive, intuitive things that led me to those places as well. So it wasn't, a, it was like, I felt like I was following my life. So there was, a, there was something, there was an instigation or something that, that made that feel like, yes, I'm going to f- trust that. That's what feels right. I'm going to trust it. I'm going to go there. Uh, and then, you know, being in my 50s and looking back, I can, I've got a different viewpoint now of the challenge of those things and, you know, seeing how hard those things were. But at the time, I felt like I was doing what felt right and, you know, having an adventurous life or trusting myself or trusting my instincts or... What don't you like about yourself? (laughs) Maybe the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Isn't it always a way? Like, strengths and weaknesses are often the same thing. So I'm very... Part of what makes me good at what I do is my level of empathy with people and being able to feel things deeply but that's also a challenging way to live as well because I'm very deeply affected and deeply feeling and always inquiring into myself or you know others so and do you do you say do you carry that after you've been with someone and that you you resonate with what's being talked about you sit with it you feel that and it stays with you for a while is that what you mean or not no so a lot of what I've done has been like self-inquiry personal development that kind of thing I'm a little bit there's a bit too much of that in my life so there's a bit too much personal inquiry or connecting with my feelings and you know and it's a bit out of balance so whilst that's a a major strength and a massive big what I offer and what my life is about living like that is challenging and so that being what you just said then in terms of the challenge that you face when you have when you overexpress yourself when you feel when there's too much emotion is that kind of what you mean is that when I'm engaging with my emotions yeah how, do, and so how does that give me an example of how does that manifest that was good so that go. was good that was this good is, this is an example right That's good. like you asked me a simple question and I'm feeling it deeply that's an example. Yeah, well, like, that's, I can't that's not. <laughs> yeah, no, but like, that's great. That, for me, that's great. <laughs> and for people listening to it, that, I think that's great as well because the reason why I do this is for people to listen to you and me, but you, and resonate with the kind of person that you are and go, wow, that's how I am. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I get that from the other side. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not easy for you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> do you want, I should have bought some tissues. I did this live yeah. the before. <laughs> Do you get pleasure? Oh, you get some satisfaction. For me, this is an incredible journey because I'm fascinated by people yeah. and who they are, what they're all about. What, what, what can I learn from you? What can other people learn from you? That's why I'm doing this. Yeah. And just hearing your story, even coming here, I drove here and I, drove, and I went, wow, I, you know what? Forget even the podcast. I've... I've got just something from coming here yeah. because I'm not used to being and I've never been here before. So the experience of this, yeah, I'll remember that. Yeah. And that's when I'm all of, that's for me. So I love, this is. <laughs> it's quite beautiful here, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, you, there's no part of me that thinks 
that I'm only 45 minutes away from where I live in a yeah. city, I could be, this is in the car, you know, and also the, the fauna, the whole surroundings, I'm like, yeah, I grew up in London, so mm. that's not, it's not like that at all. Yeah. Anyway, let's go back to the question <laughs> I asked you. What was it? The challenge that you face with, with the way that you express the emotions mm. that you feel, how have you... Where have you had issues with that, around that? Where you've had too much emotion, you haven't been able to control that. It's been, how, how, does, how does that manifest with other people then? I think because I have and have developed a capacity to be with you know, intense emotion, but that's not the average person. So, and so do you struggle with that? Interest? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so I feel like I'm too much. I, I feel like I'm too much for people. My, if I was to be fully authentic about my feelings all the time you know or more of the time that I feel like that would be people it's too much for other people but then do you think that says more about other people than you the world that we live in maybe I think it's also like partly uh, when I was in Greece last year my father's Greek so people are having a conversation but to an Anglo they look like they're having a fight so in Greece I'm not too much so, but I have that expressiveness and passion and intense emotions are the norm for fiery, you know, Europeans, whereas in this country, it's not. So I think, again, it's, it's a mixture of culture and personality, you know, my own personality. And so that must have caused you to be upset at times when you've then you've gone in a situation where you perhaps haven't got the reaction that you've wanted or yeah. and you come away going well I'm different I don't, I don't want to feel this way because this is who I am and yeah. I'm not being accepted yes in a completely different way but yeah. I totally get that yeah and it feels like a lot to ask in a partner or you know so friends you you go you, you'll be with for a short amount of time but for a partner it's a big ask and was that an issue with your well, <laughs> I don't know if you've got a partner issue. or you had a... I don't, but I have had. So my, for my ex-husband, we, he was, you know, like he was equally intensely emotional. So that was challenging in a different way. But I think that's what made us compatible for a lot of, you know, for, our, for the time we were together. We were both had a willingness to, and a, yeah, and a capacity for intense emotions and to want to talk about things and to really want to express things to each other. And that was really the foundation and the glue of our, of our marriage. But it was also challenging as well because it was fiery. <laughs> I'm guessing that intense. would have caused... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the end, it, why did it... What was the reason for it not working out, if you don't mind me asking you? Well... Was it anything to do with what you like? Was it just too much? No, I, no, it wasn't. I mean, partly, I think there was a bit too much freedom of expressing negative things. You know, there was a lot of kind of love hate relationship that ended up being more hate than love. There are other issues, but there wasn't for me a lot of respect, or there wasn't a lot of friendship left, or respect, or kindness. And the times of coming together were less and less, or you know, so it was more hate than love yeah and then going back to what you did I know from reading um, your bio on your website that you had a corporate background yeah and so what you just talked about was that really struggling then to be in a corporate world where you are somebody 
who has emotions and does express themselves in the corporate world, that would not be typically, I'm imagining, I mean, I have been in that world myself, Yeah, acceptable. Or you've had to completely control that and just hold everything within you. Well, it was a long time ago now, so uh, um, I was less easy with my own feelings. But the the focus for me being in was in the relationship building of the corporate world. So in sales and relationship building and project management and things like that. So it was the human element that I was really interested in and good at. I did enjoy that and I did have ambition, you know. So I wanted to be good. I I liked being a part of a team. I liked learning. I liked the human side of it. So that made me good in that way. That was good for me in that way. And then it really changed after having children. Then I got interested in birth, but I felt like I was there more of a support person for the other people, you know. So I was like the human element in the corporate world. I wasn't very good at my job at that time, but I really felt that that probably wasn't what I was being employed for, but that people needed someone who cared around them or someone who was kind of emotionally kind of present. And then so what, what, what gave you the transition from the corporate to what you, was it you do, what you do now was what you did straight after corporate? No, so the transition was birth work. I was working in a telecommunications company when I was pregnant with my twin boys. After having them, I really didn't care about my job very much. So I was shocked to find myself kind of obsessing about what am I meant to do with my life when I was I was really happy as a mum. I was the, probably the happiest I've ever been. I really loved it. I felt like I had arrived somewhere as a woman. Those cliches applied. I felt like I all my instincts kicked in. I really, really loved it. And I was working part-time and really didn't care about my job. A friend of mine was pregnant. She was having a doula. And I was like, I was quite sceptical. So that I, typical, you know, you've got your personal hairdresser and you've got your personal, you've got your personal, you know, your doula. Although I'd read about them and thought they were a great idea. And she invited me along to a, a belly casting. So she was making a cast of her belly. And this woman was asking me about my birth experience and talking about birth and talking about how it was meant to be sisters together, but that doesn't exist. And... I was like, I can't imagine anything I'd rather do than be at births and hang out with pregnant women. And it was a big, like, thunderstrike of, like, it was scary how strong it was. To the point where you went, oh, my God, what, was, what have I been doing all my life until this point? Or No, not? it was just like, oh, this is what I, you know, when something is so right, it's terrifying. So I ended up starting doula training. That woman was a doula trainer. I started doula training straight away. I was working part-time two like one-year-old not even twin babies and started it was just a half a day or one one day a week thing that I was fitting in and started attending births that's where I felt like everything came together of supporting people like I was interested in transformation and helping people but I didn't want to be so engaged in problems at that time so being a doula was a way of making a huge difference in people's life helping them emotionally being present I could bring all of my skills to it because you have to negotiate the system, you've got to talk to doctors, you've got to be, ed- you know, educate, you have to communicate well, 
and I'm quite good at bridging between a touchy-feely space and a more formal space. I was good at working with sceptical husbands and emotional women and, you know, all of the gamut of people. And then anything I was interested in had an application. So if it was any kind of, if it was aromatherapy or touch or anything, had a place to come together. So it was really thrilling and really exciting. That was the beginning of working with people directly. The passion for learning about, you know, so many things. And birth is so, so fundamental to so much. So the dynamic between couples is is there. You know, your how people people's upbringing comes to the fore. People's how they were born, the trauma, how, what's held in their body, all of that stuff. It's it's such a peak and transformational moment. I got pregnant, and then I had my next child, who was profoundly disabled. So life kind of didn't, couldn't continue the way it was before. And how did you cope with that? Well, it was really difficult. In, in hindsight, I probably was depressed, but or, I mean, at the time I called it grieving. What's, I don't know if, if, if there's a difference really, but... And did you know before the birth that... that no, I wanted to, I didn't have any, I had a home birth. I didn't want to have any tests. When I was doing my doula training, because I'd got such a massive education about birth from attending births and every time I was at a birth, I'd be like, if I did it again, how would I do it? Where would I want to be? Who would I want to be with me? What would I do? So I really recommend doula training for every woman to, to get educated, to know this stuff before you're pregnant because once you're pregnant, you know, the pressure's on and you're already scared. Attending births, seeing the disruption, how people are disrupted and affected by their caregivers and... I really, at the time, wanted to trust life. That was what I really wanted to do. I'd had terminations before and I knew I didn't, there was no way I was going to do that again. So I didn't need to have an ultrasound. No matter what, I was going to have this baby. Like it was, I knew as soon as I gave birth to my boys that I could have had those children. Like whatever ideas I had of why I couldn't were, were false, were wrong, you know. And I regretted not trusting life at the time. When I was doing my doula training, there were two women that happened to be in that group who had the, you know, I would die if that would happen to me stories. So one had a Down syndrome child and one had a stillborn. And those women were so incredibly inspiring. Like they just, the woman who had the baby with down syndrome she was one of those people that like you just shut up whenever she spoke she didn't say a lot but when she spoke it was profound it was amazing and she talked about having her son and her midwife saying oh he's got down syndrome when they went to the hospital she'd had a home birth and she said well is he well well I'm taking him home he's my son and that was amazing because you kind of think you wouldn't cope, you wouldn't survive if that happened. And then the other woman whose baby died, she worked with people to take the time to be with their dead babies. You know, the system wants to anaesthetise everything. And, um, yeah, the, the value in actually being with what's going on. So I, it, just, it just resonated with me so deeply. Like, I don't want to preempt 
anything. I don't want to, out of precaution, do something. I want to meet it as it comes and I want to be, be there fully for it. And that was really important to me. So why have a test? Like, as well as learning about false positives and all of, you know, all of the stuff. So, and I'd had a really good birth experience with my twin boys, so I felt confident that I would have a positive, you know, I could birth my baby. And we were very close to a hospital, so we knew we could go to a hospital if we needed to. But, I, yeah, I did have a feeling there was something wrong. Um, and can you tell me how, how does that, how does that, looking back on it now, how, is it just a mother's intuition? Yeah. And what did, what did well, you, can you articulate that? Because obviously I'm a guy, so I'm curious to know what is a woman. Is, well, can you, can you, you can you can you can you tell me what that would mean or not? Really, it doesn't. Well, this was a big part of what I was really engaging with at that time. That whole, and I think very awakened even more so with having the first, you know, having giving birth because it is so instinctive, like where you know how do you know how to birth? Like you you know it. How do you know how to digest food? Like, how do you know how to... You, part of you knows it, but it's not your conscious thinking. But you just... You know what you know. Like, it's that instinctive part, which is really deeply activated. It's designed to be activated around birth. And childbirth gives you women <laughs> an opportunity to have, a, like, a big engagement with that instinctive part. There's not many other, when else, you know, maybe death. When I was pregnant the first time, I didn't know it was twins, but I just felt that it was a boy. I just knew. I just knew it was a boy. I was shocked to find that it was two. So how do you know that? How, you know, it's, it's just... And this time I wanted to say what I knew because I, re- I didn't want to go, oh, yeah, I knew it was boys. Pe- people get upset. Like, how do you know? <laughs> You know, how dare you not? So well, I could be wrong, but I know this one's a girl. You know, I knew it was a girl. And because I'd been doing all this birth work and attending births, after I found out I was pregnant, I realised that I'd been constantly thinking about having a baby. Like I'd been so constantly think, wishing, although I was constantly thinking if I did it, how would I do it and all that kind of thing. And then I was thinking, do I want to give birth again or do I want to have another baby? And then we had my niece staying with me and she was in the back of the car with my boys and I was like, this is how it's meant to be. There's meant to be a girl here. I want a girl. I want a baby and I want to, I'm going to let myself want what I want. It may not happen, that's okay, but I'm, I do want. And then when I conceived, I was like, oh, shit, I don't even know if we had sex. Did I involve him in it in any way? I was so, <laughs> you know... <laughs> It just felt like I'd created this thing out of my own, like, in my in some kind of private, in a thing, in a world. And I was so happy. I was like, ah, oh. it's like, ah, oh, I'm getting what I wish for, you know. I knew it was a girl, and I don't know what happened. I just suddenly felt so. That was like for a few weeks. I felt like that, and then suddenly I just felt wrong. Something felt weird, and I went and bought a crystal. <laughs> So wanky. I went and bought this little egg uh, rose quartz crystal and I was holding on to it. I don't know why. I just felt suddenly not okay. And then I was visiting my girlfriend and I actually was holding it while I was driving. 
And I arrived and I realised it was no longer in my hand and I dropped it somewhere without realising it because unconsciously. And I went back and looked everywhere and I couldn't find it and it felt like some confirmation of something. <laughs> Sounds really... Well, no, because you're saying to me, I'm going, couldn't it just be you just put it down? And But I guess what you're saying, well, yeah, it's more car- si- it's It more just felt significant because yeah. it was a and symbol. It, w- yeah. it was a symbol to me of I was trying yeah. to hold on to something that I felt like I'd lost. And I'd, anyway, it was a moment. And then towards the end of the pregnancy, I was starting to feel a little bit... I did have a feeling, but I... Yeah, but it was still a total shock, of course. Yeah. And then how did you, did cerebral palsy, did the baby come out? The normal birth? So the birth was my dream birth. It was like, my, it was absolutely perfect. It was so beautiful. I was at home. The boys got a fire engine blow up pool for <laughs> their birthday. So I was birthing how in a fire engine. how old were they? They ages? were, yeah, they had turned two. And I knew, I knew she was a girl. I knew it was going to be, I knew she was going to be, it was going to be a three-hour labour. And I knew, yeah. And I was watching this video because, again, with the doula stuff, watching this video called Birth Into Being where this woman births her own baby like out of in her own arms and lifts the baby up really gently out of the water and strokes the baby's head when the head's out and the body's still in. And, and that, I, that was the imprint that I wanted to give myself as the way I wanted to birth. And it was. It was absolutely p- perfect. But as soon as she came out, it was obvious. Like she looked really weird. She had extra little fingers and toes dangling like from a thread of skin from her, yeah, from her, like the edge of her hand and her feet. And that was weird. Like it's amazing how, you know, like how wrong a broken limb looks because a a limb isn't meant to move like that. So I remember that looked really weird, these kind of floating little fingers and toes. Yeah, she was really red and she she looked very strange. And at that moment, maybe it was the feel-good hormones of the birth, I was like, very at peace with it and she wasn't breathing and we ended up rushing to hospital but I didn't want to go Uh, at that point I was like if she's meant to die she's meant you know I was in that but I you know I probably would have so we rushed to hospital so it was from the beginning that it was clear there was something major we didn't quite know what at the time and I thought they'd whisk her away when we got to hospital but they didn't and she was massive she was 10 pound baby she was really big but she ended up in the special care nursery and we took her home. And it was a few months before we got a diagnosis. And at that time it was neuronal migration disorder, which just means glitch in the programming. How did you deal with that, looking <laughs> back on it now? Well, I... The same way you dealt with everything else? Yeah. Well... You did, there, was, there was a point where you went, why me? I was, wasn't... It, there was something that felt right, even though it was terrible. It was like, I, I don't know, part of me isn't surprised. I wasn't so much a why me. I mean, there were times when I had wished she had died, we had let her die, that, that that was the point that I stopped trusting. I had a big hemorrhage, which is natural, like understanding what I do about birth when you, when, when you go into fear, you know, it affects your hormones. And so then a hemorrhage or postnatal bleed is to be expected so I wouldn't have liked a dead mother and a dead baby on the lounge room floor for my children to other children to wake up to so I had to it took me quite a while to come to terms with accepting that she was meant to be here and the grief continues grief 
is an ongoing part of it. And how is it with your partner? He only recently talked about being in denial because he always said, I just love her the way she is. And he's been amazing with her. He's very, very hands-on, very, very close to her, loves her, walked the Camino with her, you know. So he really, really loves her. But we didn't grieve together, so he wasn't with me in the grieving, you know. So when I was wanting someone with me to share the grief, he, he was like, I just love her the way she is. And did you resent him for that? Well, it was, it was isolating. It was lonely. And looking back, would you think that was, when I asked you before about why you're married, do you think that was one of the things that could have caused that? Well, it didn't help. No. I don't think that. it's the major cause, but it certainly doesn't help. You know, she, she's very profoundly disabled and we had her in our room the whole time she, because, like, when you can't even lift your blankets up or, you know, like, I don't want to have to go to her. So just to have her in the room was easiest it's and it's impacted my boys intent you know it's just impacted everything so much because everything revolves around the disability it's not aurora the person but it's her disability which affects everything limits everything changes everything and you know these days i grieve more for my boys how it's impacted them and they're pretty invisible in it i think in the world people don't see the impact on them they don't think about it their whole their whole life's restricted because of their, their sister's needs. Given what we talked about before, <laughs> about boys, and do you talk about that with them, how they feel about? Well, these days, as they're, you know, 17, even just acknowledging that it affects them and how invisible they are and how it's just shit, it's just shit, and they have been affected and our lives are restricted. Like, we, if we can't just go and play at the beach or we can't just go for a hike or we can't just, you know, because Aurora can't do it. And so we've been homebound and just their Aurora's been the focus of attention and she's the one that gets all the attention and they complain about that. And So these days I do it by giving them permission to say really politically incorrect disability jokes, you know, and I was like, you've got the right to do that. If anyone, you know, you of all people have got the right to make jokes about this. It's important that you do because there's so much tippy-toeing and so much fear and wariness around around it all. So that's kind of one small thing <laughs> that I do of giving them permission. They get to have that. <laughs> they get to at least be shocking in making jokes about disability and uh, knowing that they, I've got, they've got my endorsement. <laughs> and does she live with you? Yeah, yeah. So she, like all the kids are 50-50 with me and their dad. And so she would need constant attention? Well, she, she needs constant attention because she's 15 years old and prefers to be doing stuff than not. But she can go with the flow pretty easily. Like she's happy to watch a movie or if the boys are here with their mates or something, she loves hanging out with them. But she likes to be on the go. She loves going to school and doing stuff. She doesn't... She gets bored. So she can be incredibly patient, but if she's... She can get frustrated as well. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. What do you do for you? Well, I have plenty of therapy. <laughs> well, my friends are the main thing. You know, that's my, my most pleasure of hanging out with friends and really those relationships. I love my sister. We're going to Greece 
later in the year. I've got a friend with a houseboat on the Hawkesbury River. So getting time like that is really important for me. Have you had a partner since you've been married? Yeah. And how's that been for that person, given your circumstances with your daughter and stuff like that? And I don't know. Has that was that has that been more challenging or not? Yeah, I mean, there's people with dating. There's people who stop talking when they find out. You know, you've got a disabled ch- child. The one person I was really in love with after, it was a real problem for him. Initially, it wasn't, and then the more time went on, the more he was like, "I don't want to live with a disabled person. I don't want my life to be restricted." what's going to happen in the future and I was like I don't know work it out as it comes because that's what I've always done and when the time comes it does work out so it was it was scary when she finding going to school it was terrifying at first you know getting letting her go on the bus to school but we get there or the first wheelchair or the first whatever and there's a process that happens of like initially it's in the future and it's terrifying how the hell are we going to do that and then as you get closer, it's like you get a bit of exposure, information comes, support comes, and if you get there. And I don't know how that's going to happen with her perhaps living independently or in, a, in some kind of if that happens or how that's going to happen or what's going to happen. Some information's coming about that. But that's the way I do it. It's like it'll come. That's what I've because I can't do it before it comes. It's too daunting. It's too terrifying. It's yeah. But for him, he was a, more of a planner, and he would have had a. He thought that he would have had a plan, and this should be a plan, and and he was very concerned about it. Hmm. Sounds very male. Yes. And I was. That was one thing I wanted to ask you before. Do you find that with men typically that they 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 struggle to express how they feel? I think it's harder for men, for sure. I was talking to you about the Esther Perel. I was looking at an Esther Perel conversation, and you know, my boys hate the word feminism. I want it, I want them to love it, <laughs> but she was you know talking about the very unspoken trauma for men of being told to man up and being told to not feel from each other. You know, like the trauma to men of being suppressed and being bullied into not feeling and not allowing feelings to to be felt or expressed. It's really challenging. And would you say that some our generation versus your children's generation, there's a difference between how men uh, are more, even though you said something different then, are able to express themselves? Or would you say that hasn't really changed from generation to generation, that... I think it's getting better, but I still think it's it's hard. Like I was watching uh, that man up with my sons, you know, that show about men and emotions and, and that. And while my boys will fight for, but men suffer too and there's more suicide too and they'll do those arguments. And one of my sons was saying, oh, that's just not the case now. Men aren't shamed, boys aren't shamed for feelings. and But then when they are feeling something, they don't want to talk about it. And they do, I see them do, hold it in and just instinctively not let want to feel their feelings. So I think it's still very entrenched. It but is. But less than before. You know, there's so much amazing conversations happening 
in the world these days, new conversations, I think it's an incredible amount of change, but there's also so much confusion and pressure. And well, it was, it was talking, going back to what I was talking to you about before, there's so much com- people conform. So whether that's in conforming by you know, what you do, where you go, what you say, what you wear, down to how you think you're supposed to be, because that's how <coughs> men are, or that's what, it's almost that intrinsic kind of perceived way of being, which I think is, is bullshit. Because there's a lot more suppressed emotion out there, which is when you talk to the beginning, how, and I think that's amazing, you are the way you are, because there are more people like you, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> You might think that's <laughs> perhaps I'm, yeah. You don't get what I'm saying. I'm not, yeah. <coughs> well, people I do. hold so much in. Yeah, and it's why we're violent, like because we're not connected. It's the disconnect. And so, you know, in all the trauma stuff and all that conversation is about attachment and connection. So when we don't, when we're not connected and we're not attached emotionally, that's what causes us to not be able to be empathetic towards another whether it's another race or another whatever it is you know to to feel our own personal isolation has us not be able to recognize another person or feel for another person if we could we wouldn't be able to hurt them or a tree or an animal or we couldn't hurt it if we were connected i I want to be easier i want to be more at peace and in myself i yeah i do I get lonely and sad a lot. I think a lot of what I talk about these days, I mean, I'm not old, old, but is how, you know, how to come to terms. I've got things, I've got things, I've got this beautiful home that I love, I've got work that's really meaningful, but there's an inner, you know, discontent. How to come to terms with things, like, like I said earlier on, how to, like, come to peace come to terms with this is how it is you know like I'm not I used to be a lot more ambitious I used to want more you know I used to want to in the birth world I wanted to have a reputation or I wanted to build a big business so I wanted and I don't have those ambitions anymore which is a relief actually and have your circumstances changed that or do you just think age time a mixture yeah, I think age is a big, like I look at my 40-year-old friends and they're really dry, really driven to create their empire and really, you know, and I just don't, I've tried some things. I had some successes and some failures and the effort, I just don't want to make, you know, the effort to try and make that happen, I just don't have. And then in other ways, like I have a successful practice which took a long time to create and it's tiring. <laughs> it's tiring, it's really demanding. So given that I have things that I aspire to, it doesn't change that internal state. So how do I come to peace? You know, what does, how do I come to peace? How do I feel contented when, you know, I live here, I do this, these are my circumstances. So that's kind of the current question for me. And do you have a sense of how you achieve that? I (laughs) don't. Well, I do things like I listen to people like, David White, we were talking about podcasts before, David White, who's a, an incredible poet slash philosopher who is talking about this, the nature of being human, the nature of uh, the older you get, the more you have to grieve, the more you lose, that, that, you know, the truth of that. So I think it's this stage of life of, of like it's not so much when I get there I'll be happy. It's like, well, here I am, how do I be happy? <laughs> 
I know the truth of when I get there, I'll be happy is a myth. I know that that's not how it works. And I've known that for a long time, but I've still been trying. So here I am, how do I live with myself? And so listening to people like that, share that, that's, you know, there's solace in that. There's deep solace in that. But it's an ongoing thing. It's not a, unfortunately, not an arrival. No. What do you look for in the people around you? today? you mentioned before about having great friends who dare support you. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's not, that's what they give you, but. Well, I just find if I can share, if I just share the things I'm grappling with in my life, then I like my life, my spirit lifts and I can have a lot more fun. So, you know, it's, if I, if I feel free to, to express all of myself, then I'm a lot more playful. And I get that from my friendships, from my relationships, from in, from connections. If I, I don't, I fester if I'm on my own too much. So, you know, that, that freedom of like, then I share it and we talk about it and then, you know, and then we can have a laugh and do some fun stuff. So that's what I've noticed. So if, I, if I'm with people who are uncomfortable with depth of feeling or just sharing challenges, you know, like in this world where everyone's trying to be positive which is actually I don't have the capacity <laughs> people not having a capacity to be sort of real so if there's some if I'm with I can very quickly sense when they're uncomfortable to be sort of more honest or authentic about what they're up against in their life then I'll be uncomfortable so my friendships are ones where you know we share the, the whole gamut the ups the downs the in-betweens yeah, it goes back to, I've mentioned this before in another podcast, where when you go to someone and they'll, you'll ask them, how are you? And they say, good. And then somebody else said to me, well, you know what, I'm, that's, I'll just say that because that's a quick, easy end to that. And I, you don't necessarily want to hear me go, it's shit, because, and here's all the reasons why it's shit. Yeah. When actually I think there's a way of saying that. Mm. You don't have to go into that. But good, I ask my children at the end of it, How's, how was your day? good mm. really mm. was it good I mean it's great if it was good yeah. and maybe it was for them it was good yeah but it's okay to say that it wasn't good but it's just a, the wrong question how was your day it's too it's too big it a is too big a question I agree with you yeah and I then do have done picked out specific things and they'll give me answers to those yeah yeah so I know what you mean but I just think well, generally you go to someone and how you get good and you're like that all of that's so automatic, isn't it? That it how's is your day, you know, how's your day good? The way we interact like that is just so automatic. And you mentioned before, and I asked you about all the stuff you've been through and you, and you talked about, you had therapy and you have therapy rather. And there are people from my own experience that just kind of dismiss that and, and think that's not important. And what would you say to me in, I mean, in terms of how that's helped you get through what you've got through? Essential. I have therapy whether I'm celebrating or, or not, you know, so... Therapy, to me, just make, helps, helps me have a better life as an ongoing part of my life. We're always coming up against challenges. We're always dealing with things to have. So you have a coach. It's okay to have a coach if you want to be a great athlete or if you, a coach for your fitness. Why not for your emotional well-being? It just, to me, it's like that. It doesn't, your need for your PT doesn't end after one session right you want to have emotional wellness so I think the stigma is still quite there but it's much less 
Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, and we're all traumatised. And helping to understand it and articulate it helps us be able to engage with it and then helps us to be able to share it with other people and helps us to be able to understand other people. And so I think it's really helpful. It goes back to what you said in terms of people, I think human connection is so important. Yeah. And people need it more and more. There's a lot more people who are isolated, who live on their own, who live very well isolated lives. So I think that's so important. I agree. It is that person who's there for you. You don't have to take care of them. And there's something about that relationship. It's like the good parent that you never had. You know, it's that person who just is reliably always there for you and over time gets to know you deeply and see a big part of your life and that there is a place where you are not responsible, that you can be taken care of, that you that someone is there purely and solely for you is a sacred place and it makes life better yeah i completely agree with that (laughs) (laughs) yeah and there's the act of that let alone what you're dealing with in therapy but the act of having that support the sense of having that support is important it means that you are worthy it means that your your needs are valid that that you're important so whatever happens within a therapy session the space of it itself is so important Uh, i used to go to therapy in crisis you know because i felt like i couldn't afford it or i couldn't it wasn't important and i needed it to be fixed you know when i when things were really bad or when i was in a crisis point so it was a big thing to go well i just prefer i just feel better life is better when i have it so i just have it fortnightly and that's it and so my the my therapist and now has seen me through you know my divorce and seen me through so many things and knows me so well she has such insight and a map to me so she has references to parts of me that I can forget when I'm in distress or you know of parts of me that have come through difficulties or my capacities or she knows me so deeply and it's it's so great knowing that someone knows me like that and I don't think friendships, they do know you, but it's a, it's a whole different dynamic. And how did you find your therapist? Um, through, I knew of her, we'd actually crossed paths in doing some personal development stuff together and then I was referred to her. So it was, she's about my age, which is really great. Um, and we have a similar language because we've, we've, we've done similar kind of trainings. So there's a really good fit previous to that I had someone who was a bit on a pedestal so I felt like I was a bit needing to perform more so it's just great to have a there's someone that feels like a really great fit and I think for me that age stage thing feels really important at the moment like menopause and change of life stages and it feels really important to have someone who understands that so yeah she's wonderful and did you have therapy for going back to your boys? Did they see? Have they seen anybody? We've. I've dragged them. They don't want it. No. Yeah. I've. You know. They. I've taken them to a couple of things, but it's not been their initiation, and they don't really want it. And it's like, my mum, you're weird shit. So, you know, and dad's weird shit. He's into that weird shit as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. So, so I think hopefully, what I try and let them know is that. 
it, um, it's okay if it doesn't work, but that you can keep trying different things, you know, that there's help, there's different kind of help and that asking for help is a really massive skill to have or seeking out help. You know, mm. some people just can't do that or are terrified of that. So it's okay if it's not a fit, but it's worth a try. You're worth it, you know. Yeah, look, I agree. I'm, I'm in, a, in a men's group. That's a form of therapy, which is amazing. You sit mm. in a room, there's a group of us, and we share, and it's been transformative for me. The world would be a much better place if more men did that. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good place to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. thank you for listening to more real i truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me if you've enjoyed it please tell anyone you know about more real i'm very grateful as always for your support thanks very much